0: Welcome to episode three of the Radical Simple Living podcast. My name's Ray Lovegrove and I'm talking to you from my kitchen in a house in the middle of the woods in southern Sweden. It's snowing outside quite heavily but I'm nice and warm inside. You can hear the crackling of my log fire in the background here and occasionally I will pause recording to put another log on. Now, I don't sit here with a great script. I don't sit here with any kind of editing facility. It's just me, my voice. And if I need to stop, I just press the pause button. It seems to work. I keep it simple because that's what this podcast is all about. Simple living, radical simple living. And this is a third podcast. so I've got some data back now on how the series is going down and it's going down well. It reached number six in the charts in its category and uh, it's back down to number 14 now but maybe it will go up again soon if uh, more people listen and I'm getting a worldwide audience. It's good to know so many people from North America, uh, different bits of Western Europe, uh, India and particularly Australia and New Zealand it's doing very well in Australia and New Zealand and uh, I'm very pleased about that I've got lots of friends on social media there and it's nice that they're tuning in if you know anyone that would be interested please pass on the details to them and it's very important that you go to wherever you listen to this podcast and give it a rating be honest, say if you like it or not write a comment subscribe if you want to hear more all of this helps because it's important that... uh, The message gets out there because the message about radical, simple living is what the whole thing's for. Now, just to catch up with last week and and bring you back to the conversation, we were talking about three things you need to live your life more simply. The fact that you might want to live your life more simply suggests while you're here listening to this podcast, or maybe you already listen, maybe you already lead a a simple life and you're just listening to see if uh, my thought is the same as yours. I don't know. But these are three things that uh, I came up with some years ago that you need as the basic preambles to pursuing a radically simple life. One, is the desire to live more simply and avoid a life that is more complicated than necessary. Two, the need to care for and cherish the environment. Not your environment, the environment, everybody's environment. That's very important. It it wasn't the case with simple living a 100 years ago. Uh, Simple living was pretty contained. You cared pretty much about what happened in your home and your land. But the world has changed. There's eight billion of us now, so we have to take care of the whole environment. The, the, the game is a difficult one, but that's what we have to do. And thirdly, you need the belief that simplicity is a gateway to a greater understanding of the true values of life or a more spiritual approach to life. And in the last episode, we said that that spiritual approach to life isn't any particular furrow that you have to follow. It's your own. It's your own journey. It's your own journey to a more spiritual life, however you care to define that. Now, I just had to pause to sneeze then. I've got a bit of a sore throat today as well, but I hope that's not going to stop you hearing what I'm saying. It's not going to stop me saying it, that's for sure. This week we're going to be talking particularly about technology. And as soon as you say the technology world, it's one of those things that divides the world up into three, four different groups of people. Um, We're used to things that divide the world up into (laughs) two different groups of people, but three or four different groups of people is a bit different. One of those groups are those that believe technology is absolutely wonderful and can solve all our problems and whatever we're doing, technology can make it better. There's another group that thinks technology is awful. We call them Luddites, if you like, who want to smash technology and want to destroy it and want to go back to a world without technological development. Thirdly, you might find a group of people that want technology on their own terms. They want to have technology where it's going to help them with a specific problem that they have, but they don't want technology if it intrudes on their life. And if it makes their life more difficult than it need be. Because remember, one of the ideals of simplicity is that we don't make life more complex. And there's another group of people in there that those who, maybe I'm talking to a few people like this today, those that don't think technology should be intruding on their lives, but somehow they don't seem able to stop it. They don't seem able to turn off the computer, to turn off the smartphone, to avoid some of the things that drag us into places that we haven't really got the time to be at or maybe don't want to be anywhere near. So those are the four groups I would identify. And I'll tell you right away where I stand. I'm not somebody who loves all technology. I, I, I'm i definitely not. I never have. I don't own or drive a car. I have an ageing set of um, uh, appliances here in the house. I'm recording on some fairly limited IT equipment here. But I I don't mind. That's my choice. Um, Neither am I somebody that wants to destroy technology. I'm not a Luddite. I don't want to live without any technological age uh, at all. I want to live with technology helping me. I want to live a life where if I need technological help, I can go for it. But I have another rule, and that rule is I need to be able to understand that technology, understand it enough to make it work for me properly. Now, some technology, um, I can work. Some technology I can use some technology I can repair if it goes wrong. And my piece of technology as an example of that is the flushing toilet. Now, like it or not, the flushing toilet is a pretty essential bit of technology for most of us. There are alternatives, and I know I'll be speaking to some people here who have composting toilets. I have built a composting toilet myself for when uh, things go wrong. Um, some of you will have other methods. Well, that's fine. Some of you may go out in the woods with a shovel. That's okay. But for most of us, the flushing toilet is a pretty essential part of the technology we have. Now, I like to know that if my flushing toilet goes wrong, if it won't flush, or if it doesn't stop flushing, or if it flushes sometimes, not other times, I can get down on my knees, get a torch, have a look, see what the problem is and with a few washers and the odd piece of piping or what have you I can solve any issue that comes up. I didn't have that knowledge taught to me. I've gathered it over the years of generations of flushing toilets going wrong. I've developed a strategy for how to investigate them, what to do, how to repair them. And most of us have similar strategies for bits of technology uh that we have to deal with and that's good because if we have technology we should be able to be in control of it a little bit we should be able to repair it not all technology is like that some of it is different i'm talking on an aging chromebook here it is a very aging chromebook and it it doesn't do a lot other than uh, record these podcasts to be honest you can watch things on it but it's not very good for anything else. Sorry, Chromebook, but it's not. Um, if it goes wrong, I am fairly limited into what I can do to repair it. I'm, I've been using computers for many years and I can do the basic things and I can check and I can know and what's gone wrong and I can try and do the simple things. What I can't do, because I'm not skilled enough, is dismantle my Chromebook and sort out what's gone wrong with the circuitry of it. I just don't know. So in many ways, this is the kind of technology which unlike the flushing toilet I'm in control of, the Chromebook is a black box. I know how to use it. I know what buttons to press to do this. I know what uh, switches to switch to do something else. But it's a black box in that what goes on after I press those buttons or after I alter those settings, I don't know. Somebody has to sort it out for me if it goes wrong. I hope it doesn't go wrong because those things prove expensive and that's another issue about not having too much technology. Some of our technology is simple and we can cope with it and some of our technology is difficult and we can't cope with it. And my ideal is to have as much simple technology as I can in my life and reduce the black box technology, the difficult stuff, to an absolute minimum. Now, I'm going to use a little example here of uh, a piece of technology which I've had to get to grips with in the past year. Uh, I'm not off-grid here. We do have one electricity line that comes through the woods on tall poles and brings electricity to the house. It doesn't bring much electricity to the house. We could do with more. It's not like living in a city where you've got a great cable underground that delivers all the electricity you want. We're fairly limited into um, what we can use here. And we are also limited to the fact that the overhead cable occasionally goes wrong. I live in a forest and trees fall over sometimes. And even if trees don't fall over, branches fall off trees. And even if branches don't fall off trees, sometimes branches get so heavy with snow that they're down and they touch the electricity line that's coming and it cuts out. So one of the things I have to cope with here are fairly frequent power outages in the winter now it's nothing i know there will be people listening here that have been without power for weeks on end and there's some people listening here who don't have any power at all they're off grid and that's fine um but i use electricity here now i i haven't got mains water all our water comes from a well it's not the original well from the house when it was built in 1908 it is a well that was built in the 1950s and i'll tell you a little bit about how i know that uh, later on but in the meantime water is pumped to the house using electricity we have an electric pump and the well has a, a piece of piping in it and the electric pump pushes water into the house so effectively i can turn taps on and off and flush toilets just like anybody that lives in a city can do The only problem is, if the power goes out, the pump no longer works. And if the pump doesn't work, then I don't have any water to the house either. Now, on top of the well in the garden is a rather impressive cast iron pump from 1908. Now, I I do provide notes for all these podcasts on my blog, which is called radicalsimpleliving.blogspot.com. And if you go there, a couple of days after I published one of these podcasts, I uh, put up some notes to go with it. And I'm sure that I can send a photograph of my cast iron pump so you can see what's happening. There's a little noise that goes blip occasionally. I don't know what it is. I don't know if that's coming over but or where it's coming from, but it's uh, it's a worry. I'm sorry about that. I'm not going to edit it out, but I'm sorry about it anyway. I hope it's not disturbing you too much. or it hasn't got you looking around at your technology to see what's making the noise. It's definitely here, and I'm sorry. Now, in any winter, we have a series of power cuts. We just do. And last winter was a pretty bad one. Uh, We had power cut after power cut after power cut. That's a power outage for North American listeners. And one of them was 12 hours. And that's fine, except there's no water in the house for 12 hours. And the cast iron pump that's on top of the well is frozen solid for most of the winter. It's cast iron. There's nothing you can do about it. You cannot use it in winter. It's cast iron. It's got a leather washer in it. And it doesn't work. So I had to make some technological advances. And again, I'll put some photographs of these up on the... Uh, up on the blog so you can see it I had to fit a new pump that was different from the cast-iron pump A, I had to go into modern materials I had to go for a plastic pump I went for one that's been developed for developing countries so almost anybody can fit a pump to a water supply I had to put a new pipe way down into the well and I had to lag it carefully, I had to buy some pretty high-tech polymer lagging that uh, is guaranteed to minus 25C now we do go colder than minus 25C on occasions, but not often Um, we certainly go to minus 15, 16, 17, 18 degrees C on a regular basis but not as cold as 25 very often And I had to introduce a system where the pump itself had a sort of jacket that goes over it in cold weather. So now, if I have a power cut in the middle of winter, I've introduced the technology that will help me get over it. Because I can draw water from the well, I can continue to cook, I can continue to flush toilets indoors, although there's another problem there that I'll tell you about later on. And I can continue to live a pretty normal life without electricity because I have water. And whilst I'm happy to live without electricity, living without water isn't quite as good. But I've overcome that problem by using technology. And the joy of this pump is because I rigged up the system myself, I ordered it, I ordered all the bits, I put them together, I worked it in my head how it was going to be and how it was going to look, I can fix it if things go wrong with it it's no problem to me to go backwards on how I put it together and see what I can do to put the problem right. Now the additional problem um, with that system is that of course we don't have mains drainage either. So all our water and waste goes into a septic tank and when we moved here there was a gravity fed system that took water from the septic tank to a an area called a field it was actually in the woods but it's called a field and the water drained away but that is no longer allowed in the uh, part of sweden i live in so we had to have an electric excuse me pumping system and that electric pumping system also stops working when the electricity goes so you know i had to come around this so this could mean fitting a solar pump to uh, the the waste tank, or it could mean pumping out with some other method, or the method I chose because it was easier is to have a composting toilet. So if the um, pump goes wrong, if the sorry, if the power goes out, what I can do is, you know, I can flush the the, the toilet for a while, eventually I've got to start using the composting toilet. And that's fine, I can do that. Technology has solved the problem, and it's not too terrible. Okay. Now, um, any talk of technology and how much we want and how much we don't want has to go uh, eventually to a discussion of people who really do live without so much technology and i'm talking of course of the amish now people that have known me for many years on social media know i'm always talking about the amish because i find them fascinating and i know some of you will live close to amish people and you will have your own opinions on how successful they are at doing what they do and some of you will have reasons to think the Amish are are not quite uh, people that we should be looking at for advice. Now, I can happily look at the Amish and try and learn from them because I don't have to accept things I don't want. I can accept and learn things from people that I might not agree with on everything because I don't agree with lots of people about lots of things. For all I know, the person that invented the pump I'm using was a terrible individual but it doesn't matter because I'm using the ideas that they came up with in my life to solve my problems. And as long as solutions to problems are environmentally acceptable and don't lead to the oppression of people and don't lead to horrible political consequences somewhere, I'm happy to use them. So I'm happy to look at the Amish experience and learn as much as I can from it. Now, a lot of people think that the Amish reject technology altogether. But that isn't so. And I'll tell you a few things, which if you don't live close to an Amish community, you may not know. Firstly, nearly every Amish community and the households in Amish communities use washing machines. They use washing machines, usually with little generators that only run the washing machine, and that's all they do. They don't run televisions and lighting and... Um, air conditioning units or televisions from these electricity generators they use they run the washing machine why because they have decided that the technological opportunities that washing machines offer and let's face it in an Amish community we're talking about women and we're talking about the fact that if women didn't have washing machines they would be living a life of drudgery of using wash tubs and and washing outside and doing all these, and I know some people like to do that, and that's fine. Amish families are big, and the burden of doing all that washing is is a big one. So Amish communities have decided they want washing machines, and they use generators to run them. So that's one example of how they've accepted technology, even though it's modern even though they might not be able to fix their washing machine, though I suspect they probably could solve most of the problems with it, but they accept it. And the other bit of technology that might surprise you is in Amish schools. Now, once upon a time, the Amish went to ordinary um, public schools, as they would be called in the States. Public schools In something very different in Britain, but in the States, public school means the school that everybody goes to. And once upon a time, the Amish used to attend um, public schools. But the idea of bussing children further and further away from their home to go to school put them off that idea. So today, many Amish children are either home educated or they're educated in small Amish schools where they do pretty well. Inspections of Amish schools have taught them to be. Rather good, rather better than average on a whole range of, of, of things that are measured. And one of those things uh, is mathematical ability. Math in Amish schools is taught very well and the children are very good at it. And one of the reasons is because they've all got a pocket calculator. The Amish that rejects so much technology accepts that pocket calculators are going to make life so much easier for their children. They accept them. Now, this will come as a surprise to many students in UK schools because governments there have decided that, oh, you should be able to do math without using a calculator. And even in exams that come, they're called GCSE exams, there are papers that you aren't allowed to use a calculator for. Now, I've seen a a letter um, by... Math professors from UK universities, including all the top universities, Oxford, Cambridge, um, Imperial College, all begging the government that this isn't actually a good idea. That children should be able to use calculators because what enables them to do is to do much more difficult math than they will be able to do otherwise. And all those children that don't like math and are afraid of it can do well if they're given a calculator as long as they're taught to use the calculator properly. The Amish know that. The Amish let their children use calculators. So that's wonderful. Can you hear my fire crackling away there in the background? I'm just going to close the, the door. Okay, so the Amish don't reject all technology. They reject technology which they think is going to have an undesirable effect on their lives. And that's maybe what we should all be doing before we rush out to buy technology what we should be saying to ourselves is do we really need this is there anything wrong with the way we get by without this technology if we get this technology will we lose the ability to do without it if we use this technology will it alter our lives in some fundamental way that we don't want them altered. And if we use this technology, are we extracting ourselves from the process where we can solve problems? Are we giving ourselves something so complicated that if it goes wrong, we need an expert in to deal with it? And those are the problems. There are people that are, unlike me, I consider myself very lucky at living in a house in the middle of the woods because I'm able to have whole loads of solutions. You know, if I have to cook food, there's five or six different ways I can do it. I can, I can burn wood to heat the house, and there's never a shortage of that in the forest. But I realise if you're living in the middle of a city, you don't have that many options. Your heating may be all gas, all electric, and if something goes wrong with it, you can't fix it yourself, and you've got to have somebody along to do it. And heating always goes wrong when it's the coldest weather of the year. For obvious reasons, that's when we're using it. But it also goes wrong when everybody else's system goes wrong too. And so getting an engineer along to fix it can sometimes be a big issue. And I'm sure everybody that's sat in the freezing cold waiting for a heating engineer to come along wishes that they had some low-tech way of heating their home. And of course, if you live in the middle of a city, you probably haven't it's not that easy if you live in the countryside there are lots of options to go for and most people don't the other thing that we do need to mention here is the worry about putting all your eggs in one basket now sometimes we come up with wonderful solutions to things in sweden where i live they've come up with a wonderful solution of being a cashless society everybody has to have a smartphone i have to have a smartphone i don't particularly want one but i have to have one and what i need to do with that is pay bills on it because you can't pay bills any other way there are no checks anymore checks only exist in a very sort of abstract way in sweden um You can't write a cheque, you can't pay for anything by cheque, it can't be done. You can't pay for cash in most places. If you've got a pocket full of cash, it's not a lot of use to you. Even street vendors selling strawberries in car parks in the summer. Sweden loves its strawberries. And there are stands in car parks in the summer, outside shops that sell strawberries. And you need an electronic method of paying for it. You can't pay for it in cash. You need to have some electronics. Now, I don't mind doing that, but we are, as a society, putting all our eggs in one basket. Because if that system goes wrong, if for some reason, either by the theory of things going wrong or by the theory of somebody interfering with things, some foreign power, doing their best to destroy the system if that system goes wrong the system whereby people pay for everything we've got a bit of a problem on our hands haven't we um, we don't know what to do because we put all our eggs in one basket everybody uses the same system for paying for things and if that system doesn't work if it goes down if it goes wrong everybody's thrown into chaos Now, when you're planning the technology you have in your house, try to plan for the fact that those things are not going to catch you out. For instance, if you have um, a credit card, there are two, maybe three systems that work. There's Amex, there's um, Visa... And there's the other metro, as we call it in Europe. There's different names in different parts of the world, but basically there's these three systems. If you've got two credit cards, make sure they're operating on different systems. If somebody else in your family has a credit card, make sure that theirs operates on a different system for yours. So if one of these systems crashes, you've got a backup of being able to use another system. Now, that's with credit cards that are quite simple, though credit cards are a black box. I realise we, when they go wrong, they go wrong. Um, but in our homes, we can think about putting our eggs in one basket. Um, if you live in a part of the world where you have lots of power cuts, don't buy all oil lamps, because if something goes badly wrong and it lasts a long time, a week or so, you're not going to be able to get the oil for the oil lamps. You know have a mixture have some solar torches have some oil lamps have some candles whatever you want to do make sure that you're able to cope in lots of different ways to any problem that's going to hit you now i i should say that you probably think um sweden is immune from great environmental disasters and uh we're talking about australia and australia and listeners to this podcast And I know that in um, Southeast Australia, in the last few years, you people have had some terrible things going wrong. You've had some of the worst examples of climate catastrophe that, that we know. I know this has happened. I know this has happened on the west coast of America. I know it's happened in the southwest of the states, generally. I know it's happened in Canada. I know it's happened in parts of Europe and in parts of Africa. But And certainly it's happened in parts of Asia, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh and in China even. But those people in Australia had year after year of something going wrong. Flood, fire, um, drought. And it's winter here, I said it was snowing. I know in Australia that it's the start of the summer and I do hope this year proves, this summer proves to be a good one for you folks and that nothing terrible happens to you. In Sweden, we don't suffer too much. We do have forest fires, and those forest fires uh, can be bad. Uh, We're lucky in the fact that the forest areas are fairly underpopulated, so life isn't as much at risk as it would be in some parts of California, for instance. But we did have an incredible storm in 2005. It was called Storm Gudrun, at least it was called Gudrun in Scandinavia. And um, I've got some data here that may astonish it. Uh, here we go. This was in 2005. It blew down. You ready for this number? First in metric and then in, in, in imperial. 75 million cubic metres of tree. That's not... Area, obviously that's the volume of the wood that was destroyed 75 million cubic meters of wood was destroyed in this storm now to put that in imperial units it's you ready with a pen and paper here 2.6 times 10 to the 9 cubic foot so 2.6 times 10 with nine zeros after it cubic foot That was all brought down in one night. That gave an incredible surplus of timber in Sweden. I mean, it really did. It was the biggest surplus in Sweden of timber in the world that has ever been known, as far as uh, records go. Four hundred fifteen thousand homes lost power, and some of them for many weeks. This house I wasn't living at the time was one of those that lost power in this storm. Not surprisingly. So. What we have here is, you know, I'm living here in the woods and I say, okay, these storms happen now and then. Perhaps it won't happen in my lifetime or perhaps it'll happen again next year. Perhaps it will happen this January. I don't know. So I've got to be prepared for it. So we need to use technology to prepare for things that could go wrong. I've got some solar panels. I've got some alternative lighting i've got wood heating so i don't need to worry about that but obviously where you live and your home life whether you live in a flat or in a a great ranch somewhere i don't know but you've got to use technology to be able to cope with that now um before i go because i've rambled on a little bit i want to talk to you about that children's television cartoon series it was made in canada but it was always earlwood city Does that ring a bell it was always set rather ambiguously in north america and once they had the president visiting and i know that canada doesn't have a president so i suspect it was sort of set in the states even though it was made in canada and it's about an art called arthur now some of you will know what Arthur's second name is because you watch this either when you were younger yourself or your children watch it. What's Arthur's second name? Now, once upon a time I could set up a competition, but now everybody goes to Google to find out. So shout it out now if you know. Arthur's second name is Reed. Arthur Reed. How many people knew that? Be honest, put your hand up. Yeah, surprising number of you. Now, Arthur's best friend is called Buster Baxter. You all know Buster Baxter, the rabbit. And I want to relate one episode. I've actually put a link to this. I'm going to put a link to this on the notes to go with this podcast. Buster Baxter went to visit an Amish community and he was enthralled by it. He made friends with a little Amish boy that lived there. He was enthralled by the taste of Amish apple butter, as many people are. And he went home, and Buster is an interesting character because he does tend to get very deep into things. Those of you who watch it regularly will know this. He doesn't just skim over the surface, he gets deep. And he went home, and he tried to simplify his life. Now, he lived in a modern um, apartment in a block of flats. He didn't have the um wood stove for cooking that the amish family had he didn't have the big garden outside he didn't have any of the kind of facilities that would make simple living quite a straightforward thing to do he lived in a flat so what did he do he he stopped eating any food unless it was home cooked he wouldn't eat a takeaway pizza he wouldn't eat food that was prepackaged. he wouldn't go to um the cafeteria at school. Uh, do you call them cafeterias in American high schools? It was a junior high, wasn't it? Or do you call them something else? I don't know. You know what I mean. The restaurant, maybe. The refectory. Who knows? You can write and tell me. But Buster Baxter would even go along and he wouldn't eat the food that was there. if it was He just wanted fresh cooked vegetables and all sorts of things like this. In his bedroom at night, he wouldn't listen to... Um, the radio wouldn't use his computer wouldn't watch the television he sat with the lights out in the dark with a candle and life became pretty miserable for him so what did buster baxter do well he had a talk with the woman at school the cook at school and she knew some amish people and she said the thing to do with the amish isn't to try and be amish because you can't be because the most important thing about an Amish society is that word society. It's a community where lots of people have to live together and work together. There was that funny bleeping noise again Then, And she said to him, what you should really try and do is draw what you can, learn what you can from the Amish and try and adapt it. You can live more simply but you don't have to live an Amish lifestyle to learn lessons from the Amish. If you've got time to spare, either watch it yourself, or I'll put the link up, or watch it with your children if you've got them. It doesn't matter how old they are. If they get to 18, they still like to watch Arthur episodes. It'll bring happy memories gushing back to them about how Buster Baxter learns from the Amish, that you have to incorporate the ideas of simple living And you can't lift the whole thing out of its context and copy it. Okay, my throat's getting more sore. I'm sorry about that. I hope it hasn't uh, interfered with your enjoyment of the podcast too much. Do tell your friends about the podcast. Do leave some comments. Do give it a star rating. And do, whatever else you do, subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. It's been nice talking with you again. I'll be back very soon. Thank you.